Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I want to take a moment just to let you know a bit of what's happening in our community. On October 31st, we had Pumpkin Palooza, and it was a great success. 250 people came, some from our church family, but many from the surrounding community. And again, we don't do these things as a pat ourselves on the back moment, but rather to show the radical love of Jesus with no strings attached. We were really excited with how that event happened. Coming up on November 13th, we have another Newcomers Lunch on site at the church after the 11 a.m. service. And this is a great opportunity to meet the staff, hear more about the church, and connect with others that are relatively new to the community. And so it's a free event, and we just ask that you register ahead of time on Realm or SouthviewChurch.com. This week, Clyde Glass is continuing in our series, The Incomparable Christ. The best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, and you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we'd love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of the viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may your hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites you to bring all that you are and all that you are currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. So good to be joined together with you here and for those joining in online as well as uh, we come to receive from Christ uh, through the word he has given us and then through the table of communion that we'll receive together. Uh, but just before we turn to God's word, I want to thank you all for your generosity in our fall building offering uh, because you gave over $72,000 uh, towards that building offering and that will greatly help us continue to move forward in using this place like we did this past Monday at the Pumpkin Palooza and many times beyond that to serve our community and to make Christ known. Thank you for your generosity in this. So deeply appreciated. Now today we are continuing our series in the study of the book of Revelation. And as was the case over the last weeks of this series, it's the same this weekend. There is a lot to cover. We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture together because I want to make certain you see where we're getting these ideas and teaching from. And also, there's more in these passages we're looking at than we'll be able to cover together today. As John writes in this passage about the satanic trinity, which is the red dragon and the two beasts. Now that I have your attention, turn in your Bible with me to our text, which is one of the more unusual passages in Scripture together. In Revelation chapter 12 is where we'll begin. If you want to turn there with me, and as we come to it, remember, friends, this is a word of God. And this is what we read beginning in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. 
and she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Okay. You know, we've noted already in our study of the book of Revelation that the literary genre of John's writing in chapter, really beginning in chapter 5 and following, in this book is apocalyptic literature, we've mentioned, which again was very common, popular kind of writing in John's day. Apocalyptic literature was by definition really full of these strange symbols, very unusual imagery as well. And it was designed to communicate a colorful, vivid, hopeful message of deliverance to those who are during some kind of great challenge or suffering. Like these seven churches of ancient Asia Minor, to whom John is writing to give them encouragement. And, and these are the sections of Revelation we're journeying through right now where we especially need to remember that John is writing here to followers of Jesus. As we read this, remember, that's who it's written to. He's not writing to those who don't yet know Christ. But it's kind of interesting, often in our day, people use these passages that we're journeying through to try, in some sense, almost scare unbelievers into faith. It's almost like they're saying, look what's coming. My word, are you in trouble? But let's remember, that's not John's intent here. As Craig said last week, and we can picture Revelation kind of something like a fire alarm for these churches, and really for us. We're trying to either wake them up or bring them hope in their life of serving Christ. And so John's overall intent in this fire alarm was to communicate to these churches that there is a cosmic war going on. So whether you recognize that reality or understand it, church, you are involved in it, you are affected by it. But also, church, he's saying, here's the good news, in this cosmic conflict, God wins. And here's some more good news. Because God wins, so can you. You can endure whatever you are facing in him. But there are some things about this conflict that you need to understand, John says, if you're going to persevere through it. And chief among the things you need to know is simply this. This cosmic conflict is real. It really does exist. So let me share, John writes, this kind of bizarre imagery and story and vision I received. Okay, so far, while admittedly a bit bizarre from the passage I just read you, the imagery actually up to this point might be fairly obvious. You might have already figured out some of it yourself. Because here in the passage we read, this male child born to the woman, that's Christ. 
And then the pregnant woman here is commonly understood to be not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but rather it's a picture of God's people. It's a picture, really could say, of the remnant of Israel from whom the Messiah is born. Because understand this, in Scripture, Israel really is often personified, in the Old Testament particularly, as a woman. I mean, just for example, in Isaiah chapter 6, listen to these words. This is from the prophet Isaiah. He speaks of Israel, of Zion is another name for them, with the same pregnant woman imagery. This is Isaiah 66, 7. Before she, she being Israel, before Israel was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. For as soon as Zion, that's Israel, was in labor, she brought forth her children. Okay, so we come to Revelation 12 and see that the woman, that's God's faithful people. That's remnant Israel, and now it's the church. Okay, that might be the easier part. What about this great red dragon? Now, it tells us a bit later on in our passage that the red dragon is Satan. It's God's enemy who, it says, is ready to pounce when the child is born, but according to John's vision here, he misses the child. So, who again is Satan? Well, God's word tells us, for example, in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, it describes a created angel of great beauty and power who is named Lucifer. And, and Lucifer rebelled against God, was cast down to earth long ago, and he became known then as Satan or the devil. And he was expressed through that serpent who deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he's described here in Revelation 12 as a great dragon who attacks the child. But as it says, this great red dragon that is Satan misses a child, is unable to thwart the plan of God despite numerous attempts. He misses a child, for example, at Christ's birth when igniting Herod's hatred to bring death upon thousands of young babies in Bethlehem. But he missed the Christ. In fact, if you ever wonder what was behind Herod's horrid actions there, you don't need to wonder. It was the dragon. But Satan also missed the child at the cross. I mean, there he thought he had Jesus for sure that time. And that time even Jesus died. They, they killed him. So Satan likely thought, okay, we've won. He even saw Christ descend to the dead. But God raised Jesus again to life, putting an end to the agony of his death and separation from God. And as Christ was raised from the dead, 1 Peter 3 says that Jesus made proclamation there to Satan and all his demons, declaring, to paraphrase, I've won, I reign and you are defeated. <laughs> because what looked at the cross to be this fatal wound to Christ became, in fact, through Christ's resurrection, the fatal wound to Satan and his forces. Look again, Revelation 12, 9. And it says, and the great dragon was, past tense, was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So remember church, John is saying, Satan is a defeated foe. The ultimate battle is over. And this Jesus, a child who is born, is victorious. 
which I think raises several questions. And it might also bring some confusion as we speak of this. Because if, in fact, Satan has been thrown down, as it says here, if, in fact, the victory is won, why does the spiritual battle continue? Why are Satan and his forces still doing so much damage? I mean, it is almost as if that fatal blow delivered at the cross and at the resurrection of Jesus, it's almost as if Satan has recovered from that fatal blow to him. In fact, in Revelation 13, as we're going to see, it seems to say that very thing. How so? Well, in chapter 13, we are introduced to two more characters. Chapter 12, we have the dragon, and then in chapter 13, two beasts are introduced. And this dragon, these two beasts, they are again often referred to as the satanic or unholy trinity. And by that meaning that the holy trinity, which is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, but this satanic trinity is formed from the dragon and these two beasts. They really are a counterfeit trinity here. And they're set up and they're really described as being imitators of God. So, for example, where Scripture tells us that God the Father, he gave his power and authority to Jesus, the Son of God, it says here in Revelation 13, 2, and to the first beast, the dragon, that's Satan, gave his power and his throne and his great authority. And as I said, we also see that the fatal blow against Satan didn't seem to actually be a fatal blow. Look at verse 3. One of the beast's heads, and again, we're told earlier that this beast has seven heads. So one of the beast's heads seemed to have this mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Saying, don't tell me he's dead. Don't tell me Satan is defeated. I see all sorts of power still coming from him. And so the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Which I think brings us back to our question. I mean, what explains, in light of what we've read, that Satan is still operating with such impact and power when we're told right here and in other places that he's already been defeated? How is he able to do and still doing so much damage? Well, one of the common pictures that is used to really help us understand this kind of already but not yet dimension of Christ's victory is a story from World War II of D-Day, which really links with Remembrance Day that we're going to be celebrating this coming week. And if you recall the history, D-Day, it was June 6, 1944. And, and that's when the Allied forces landed and took control of the beaches and coastline at Normandy in France. And, and that event is considered by most historians to be the definitive event of World War II. Because for all intents and purposes, the war was decided on June 6th in 1944. I mean, really, at that point, the final outcome was secure. A victory was assured on D-Day. Really, the enemy even knew they were done. It was over. But it wasn't until nearly a year later on VE Day, which is May 8th, 
1945, it's only then that the shooting in Europe finally stopped. And in fact, during that period of time, from D-Day to V-E Day, even though the victory was decided on D-Day, more soldiers died at any time during the war in that period. So really, we can understand that the kingdom of God can be understood really in a similar kind of way. I mean, Jesus came in the flesh. The dragon Satan tried to kill him at his birth, but missed. Then did kill him at the cross, but Jesus was raised from the dead. And through that resurrection, Satan and his forces, they are defeated foes. The victory is assured. It has been won through Christ, his cross, and his resurrection. And nothing will turn that around. Nothing will. That's why Revelation 12, 7 says this. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. He was defeated. But until Christ returns, Satan can still bring and is still bringing his damage. Our victory is already assured, but not yet fully experienced by us. And that kind of continuing damage by the enemy, it's described in the following verses. Back in chapter 12, verse 11, it says this. And they have conquered Satan. Again, past tense, it's been fully accomplished. They have conquered Satan. Then verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. In other words, he's done. The war is over. But he has this short time and he knows it to operate. Now, knowing he only has a short time What does Satan then do? And the answer is, as much damage as possible. He couldn't kill the child, couldn't thwart the plan of God. He knows his days are numbered, and his response to that, it says, is great wrath and rage. We see that in verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, meaning with God's people, and went off to make war on whom? On the rest of her offspring. And we ask, who are her offspring? Well, it says in the following verse, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So who would that be? That would be those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. That would be the church. It is you and me, friends. Our enemy's agenda, it really is to wreak havoc in the world. But please hear this. And let's understand, his focused target is those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And all of that to say, with apocalyptic imagery, followers of Jesus' church, realize this, you walk daily in a spiritual war. It is real. 
And, and that's why, as we realize that, we listen to the words of Paul back in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, where Paul says this, church, remember, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And, and that also is why, and is what John is trying to say in Revelation, but just using this apocalyptic imagery. So in Revelation 13, this drama, it continues to unfold as we see more of what we're up against in the spiritual battle. As we are introduced to these two beasts I've already mentioned. Look again at the end of chapter 12, verse 17, it says this. And the dragon stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And then we encounter a second beast. Verse 11, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, this time, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. And it goes on to say that this great beast then performs great signs, and it deceives those who dwell on the earth, and then it adds this as guidance and understanding for us in verse 16. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. So those who are of the beast, they are marked with a sign of the beast. Meaning, you can spot them. They have his mark. So what is that about? You know, really, as we've considered what we've read even to this point, I, I do think it raises many questions, but I think it raises particularly two questions that I want to consider in the remainder of our time today. And the question's just being, who are these beasts and what is their mark about? And then secondly, how can we stand against these beasts and the strategies of our enemy? How can we stand? Okay, first question. So who are these beasts? Well, as we've noted really throughout our study of this book, there are differing opinions among followers of Jesus about just about everything that goes on in this book. And these beasts are really no exception. I mean, we're told for one that the second beast here, it says it looks something like a lamb, right? Which is more than a coincidence because this whole book is about the lamb. It's about the Lamb of God, which tells us, for one, that the second beast is a counterfeit of the true Lamb of God. It's a counterfeit of Jesus. So it is, we could say, a twisted, false version of the Lamb. So that second beast really represents this false, twisted religion. Really, you could say human-centered religion, counterfeit Christianity, religion of self that declares, I'm the priority. I can save myself. And that faith, that religion leads to worship of the first beast. 
So what about the first beast? What is that about? Well, look at verse 7, chapter 13. It says this. And it was allowed to make war on the saints, there it is again, and to conquer them. And, and this is why, friends, this description here is why some suggest that this first beast is what is called at times the Antichrist. And the emphasis there being on the because that view holds that the Antichrist is one individual person who's going to rise to power after the rapture, meaning after Christ followers have been removed from the earth, and they believe in this view that he will then rise to power with a literal or within a literal seven-year time frame or tribulation on earth. And this then, this Antichrist, which some connect with the first beast, will be the embodiment of evil. Okay, now, while it might be true that there one day will be such an individual, it might be true. What unfortunately comes quite often with this view is a lot of speculation about who this Antichrist is. Are they alive today? And people often just eat this stuff up. Over the years, people have eaten it up. And that's why over the years, a lot of speculation has been made around who this Antichrist is. And let's be clear, all of it to this point has been wrong. I mean, we've noted before that, that a broad number of individuals have been suggested to be the Antichrist. Mussolini was, Stalin was, JFK, even President Reagan. President Reagan, why? Well, one of the arguments was, look at his name, Ronald Wilson Reagan. How many letters in each name? Six, six, six. A coincidence? And also, he was shot, nearly killed, but made this unusually great recovery. You know, I recently read this quote. There is no doubt that the Antichrist has already been born, firmly established already in his early years. He will, upon reaching maturity, achieve supreme power in our lifetime. And that was written by a bishop of France named Martin of Tours in the fourth century. Now, I, I want you to know, my concern with this stuff is, is really not that some people believe that the Antichrist will be embodied by one person at the end of the age. Perhaps that'll be the case. Perhaps that'll be true. My concern, though, is this. Kind of foolish speculation as to who that Antichrist might be. First, for one... It causes a gospel to lose credibility every time one of those predictions is wrong, which so far is every prediction. And secondly, and, and this is really even more of a concern, that kind of foolish speculation about who specifically the Antichrist is or will be, it causes us, in fact, to miss John's main point. And, and that is a very serious thing for us to miss. Because when John speaks of the Antichrist, and by the way, John speaks of the Antichrist four times. But not one of them 
is in the book of Revelation. So you won't find the term antichrist anywhere in Revelation. The four times John does use that term antichrist is in his biblical epistles, his letters of first and second John. And the thing is, every time he used that term there, he used it not only to speak of some future possibility that you need to be aware of, but he spoke of it as being a present reality. Even 2,000 years ago, John spoke of it as a present reality. In fact, what John's concern was as a pastor writing First and Second John was this. Church, you're all concerned with who that Antichrist in the future might be and, and when he is going to show up. But I'm telling you, John says, that Antichrist in the Antichrist spirit is among you now. It's here. And you do not even see it. So wake up, John is saying. Listen to the alarm bells. Listen to how he puts it. For example, this is in 1 John 4. 1 John 4 in verse 3, John says this. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, meaning you were warned about the Antichrist in the past, and now... He's in the world already, John says. Don't wait for him. Don't wait for that spirit. It's already here. So quit worrying about what's not here yet. Open your eyes to what you're already bowing down to. So here's the deal. I mean, there might be an end-of-the-world embodiment of the Antichrist in one person. There might be. We will find out. Whether or not that's true, however, the spirit of Antichrist, these two beasts described in Revelation 13 and the mark of the beast, friends, they're already here. They are already here. They existed in Jesus' day, in John's day, they are in our day, and will also exist in the final day. So let me tell you who they are. Let me tell you how they manifest, how they show up. Let's go back to Revelation 13. And the description of the first beast, it says this in verse 2. And the beast that I saw, it was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. A leopard, a bear, and a lion. Now, we have help in understanding this, because this is almost identical to the vision described in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel was describing, they're using this kind of imagery, nations, world governments, and really the kingdoms of this world, and, and not just really kind of general kingdoms, but he's even speaking about the systems of this world that rise to such power, influence, glory, and might, that in their ascendance to power, they seek to usurp God. They set themselves up as God. Even at times convincing the people of God that they don't need God or his guidance. I mean, for example, can, can you think of any areas in our day and culture where God or his wisdom are kind of being pushed to the side, viewed as irrelevant, even among followers of Jesus. 
I mean, the reality is the nations and leaders of this earth are really commonly shouting in their actions, if not in their words, away with God. We don't need God. So therefore, friends, let's be aware of the nature of the dragon in these beasts. Because these beasts don't commonly manifest themselves like some terrifying creature in a movie about aliens. These beasts come looking like us. Because people don't run from the beast. They're drawn to the beast. They submit to the beast. They want what the beast offers. And so the mark of the beast as described here on your hand or your forehead it's not some future Visa card or some coming Intel computer chip that you need to worry about. The mark of the beast, again, is already here, right? That's what John was saying. Affecting what we think, affecting our minds, our foreheads, and affecting, molding how we live, what we do, even with our hands. That's why, for example... God says these words to Israel. This is back in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 48, verse 4. God said, because I know that you are obstinate, that your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead, what is it? Brass. God wasn't saying there, or he didn't mean they literally had metal foreheads. It meant their minds were hard against God. And friends, that is the mark of the beast. And it is all around us. It was there in ancient Asia Minor, and friends, it is here today. So the second question. Okay, so how then can we stand against the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of these beasts? And, and first, it's helpful to remember what their strategies are. Let's just know two that are listed here. Back in Revelation 12, verse 9, it says this. It says, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's why he's called elsewhere in Scripture the father of lies. He wants to lead you to buy into lies and deceptions of our world. Understand, that's his strategy in your life right now. And his second strategy is this. It's expressed in verse 10. He is the accuser of our brothers and sisters. He is the deceiver, and he is the accuser. So even if you're already a child of God, what he wants to do, he wants to accuse you, he wants to shame you, to move you into a point of hopelessness and helplessness and worthlessness as you try to follow Jesus. He wants you to be concerned, not with the joy of the new identity you have in Christ and the Holy Spirit's power within you. He wants you to be concerned with the idea God won't forgive me. God can't use me. I mean, I can't overcome this in my life. So let me ask you. You ever hear those kind of voices? Those lies, those kind of accusations? Ever dwell on those a bit too much, perhaps, in your own life? So really, that battle to resist the deception and the accusations of the enemy... That, again, is an ongoing, daily, real, spiritual battle that you are in whether you recognize it or not. So again, our second question. How can we stand against that spirit of Antichrist, that kind of spirit of these beasts? How can we stand against 
these deceptions, temptations, accusations that just so easily can entangle or ensnare or wither or misguide us? And the answer is not a long one. Because our ability to stand against all the pulls and attractions and strategies of the enemy, friends, I think it begins by remembering and standing on some truths. And I think the first truth to remember is this. I, by myself, cannot stand. Will you read that with me? I, by myself, cannot stand. Kind of sounds like the first point of guidance in Alcoholics Anonymous. On your own, you are not big enough, you are not strong enough, you are not spiritual enough or committed enough. You are not the center. You are not God. And so the second truth, remember, is this. While I can't stand, he stands for me. Let's declare it. While I can't stand, he stands for me. And beloved, that is the really good news. That's why it's declared this way in chapter 12, verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, they have already come. For the accuser of our brothers, remember, he has already been thrown down. So how do we overcome? Verse 11. And they have conquered him, how? By the blood of the lamb. And by the word of their testimony, by their declarations of these truths. Because, friends, we do not overcome the deceptions and accusations and intimidations of our enemy by either cleverness of wit, by strength of will or courage, or even by our own eloquence in our own defense. We overcome only. That's part of the reason we gather like this, to remember. We overcome only by the blood of the Lamb. Shed by the Lamb at the cross. You know, we sang a hymn growing up that many of you, I would imagine, likely also know. It really had a very simple declaration. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And friends, that is our word of testimony. Amen? Amen. So before we receive from the Lamb of God in coming to the table of communion, Brett is going to come and lead us in a prayer in that hymn singing that prayer to God, reminding ourselves of the reality of how we find hope together. So as he comes, let's sing this as a prayer, preparing us for this meal together. Let's sing to him.
testimony. And so in light of that reality that perhaps we need to remember even a tangible way, uh, we come to this bread and cup praying, God our Father, that you would use this bread and use this cup to feed us spiritually in your Son. How we thank you for what you've given us to him. For we come in faith in Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen. So I would invite you, friends, to take the cup you received as you came in And if you could pull back that very top plastic section to get at the bread. And wait till we all hold it. By ourselves, we cannot stand. But our hope is not in our standing. It is in him because the body of Christ was broken for you. Take and receive from him.
and then take the cup. I don't know what deceptions, perhaps what accusations or intimidations the enemy is using in your life these days, but come again to him. Rest in him. Rest in the truth that the blood of Christ was poured out for you. You are free in him, so receive. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how we thank you for your goodness and grace to us that when we're completely unable, you give us hope and grace and truth. And I would pray, Father, even this week, you would guide us in walking in that reality. For you are our king. The victory is won. Remind us of that, whatever we face. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We stand with me, friends. So glad you could be here today, uh, here and online as well. And invite you to our newcomers lunch that we're having after 11 o'clock service next weekend. If you'd like to be part of that, just go to the newcomer center or call the church office. We'd love to have you join us for that next weekend together. And as you walk into whatever this week is going to hold for you, go out with these words from God's word to guide and encourage you. Now may the God of hope, this God we've been speaking of, now may that God of hope guide you and fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of his Holy Spirit this week, you may abound in hope in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's walk in that truth. Amen.